Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. like to introduce you to Elizabeth Edwards. Dr. Edwards is Professor of Contemporary Studies and the Foundation Year Program at King's College in Halifax, and she's a former president of the Canadian Society of Medievalists. She has published widely on medieval literature, and her book, The Genesis of Narrative in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, has influenced my thinking, at least, on Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, especially the tale that we're going to be looking at today, the tale of Balin and Balan. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Kathy. So we're talking today about Mallory's Balin and Balan. Um, so I'm wondering, can you start by giving a bit of background on Mallory as a whole and then um, contextualize Balin and Balan a little bit because it comes really early in the Mort d'Arthur. Uh, yes, it does. It does come early and that. I think that's a very significant point above about it. And I'll probably mention it again, that it comes, for example, before the oath of the round table that apparently sets the kind of parameters about what um, noble or good behavior is in the mort. And um, that's something I wonder about. Uh, he seems to have been something of a villain and he's writing in the heyday of the War of the Roses. So we've got a colophon that's giving us a firm date of 1469 on this. So we kind of know the composition date for uh, this work. We have tracked down the Mallory of Newbolt Revel, and I'm accepting the scholarship on that, uh, mostly done by Peter Field, I think, that establishes who this author was. And he was a member of the minor gentry and... Uh, spent his time raping and pillaging, apparently, <laughs> as a lot of them did during the time. So there are law court records and there are um, other forms of records that can be tracked down about what life was like in this very tumultuous time of changing allegiances and usurpation. Right? And he was famously excluded from two general pardons, yeah, correct? That's like right. one from each side? Absolutely, he was, yeah. So there was something about him that pissed people off. <laughs> and I don't think it really comes through in his writing. Now we we sentence people to prison and they spend long times there. That wasn't actually the legal situation at the time. So it is unusual that he was exempted from two pardons okay. and apparently spent a long time in prison. And yeah. prison wasn't, uh, you know, for the upper classes probably not as dire as prison is for people in the mass incarceration that is today. Right. And so if this was his hobby, uh, that he decided to spend the time remembering an age of chivalry, totally unlike the world in which he was actually living, uh, he also plainly had access to a lot of books. His project was a kind of a condensation and kind of an encyclopedia. Okay. So he, that's the way I'd characterize it. He's putting the whole, of, in the end of it, he's writing what we call the whole book, as you know, that it would be to say 
the whole of the adventures of the court of Arthur from beginning to end. Right. And at the same time, he's doing a massive condensation of all these works that he has, boiling them down into um, much more readable segments, segments that read sometimes like short stories. And that's true of the section now called Berlin and Balan as well. Okay. Good. So can you talk about where this comes in the whole book? Because a lot of people, if you ask them to, even scholars, if you ask them to summarize, you know, the beginnings of Arthur's kingdom would, you know, say Arthur's conception, the sword and the stone, the establishment of the round table, and would totally skip the Balin and Balan episode. And yet it's a long episode and it comes near the very beginning of the story. Yeah, it is long and it does it does some peculiar things in terms of the way the story is going to go. So before that, I would and have characterized most of what we hear in the section preceding to be political. Okay. Right? So more history than romance. Yeah, more history than romance. It's got a lot of chronicle elements. It's setting up how you come to power, who was in power before, counselors, wars, various names of kings and so on. And that is, in fact, going on. It's ongoing in the story of Berlin and Balan. Right. Um, in, insofar as they are continuing Arthur's consolidation project by defeating King Roins and then King Lot and the five right. kings. And yet it is um, also the first place where romance intrudes very heavily where we have these strange stories of knights going off on, uh, in, in the form of errancy and having adventures, taking the adventure, pursuing things by themselves and coming into a realm of marvels. Right. So it's, um, I think it's very important in that regard that it puts together the two uh, main um, trajectories, narrative trajectories, or I guess I would use and have used um, Bakhtin's phrase, chronotopes. Okay. Can you explain that? Yes, I can. <laughs> okay. Uh, chronotope, like topos means a place and chronos means time. And so it's a, a portmanteau word that puts together space and time. Okay. And so Bakhtin's idea is that different genres have different space-time configurations. Right. And uh, certainly we see that time for romance is completely different than the time of the historical unfolding. Right. And how long things take is often very dreamlike and uncanny in, in romance. And whereas um, chronicle and history tends to proceed in a linear fashion and to have kind of causal connections and things that enroll one thing after another. Right. Whereas romance is kind of caught out of time or or taken out of of this kind of historical time yes yeah it, it produces a kind of an interval and yet inside Arthurian romance in my view it's in that interval that timelessness even that the real uh, mission of chivalry is accomplished interesting interesting okay well let's hold that thought about the real mission of chivalry and um, can you summarize the plot of okay. Balan and Balan for a bit I I know that that this is a really hard question um, so what's the initiating incident of this this little episode 
Okay, well, here we have the the problem with uh, summarizing Mallory is that Mallory is himself summarizing and giving his plots is often just as long as it takes him to give them and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes longer if you've read right. the criticism. So go read the text. <laughs> yeah, go read the text. Uh, okay, so in the classic form of romance, a damsel has come to the court of Arthur with a magic sword and no one but the best knight on earth can withdraw this sword from its scabbard. Uh, we get the backstory on her later, but in the first instance is that Balin of, is, of course, the one who pulls the sword. He's a poor knight. He's been in prison. He gives a kind of a moving speech about uh, um, his array, his clothing, and his view that poverty shouldn't interfere with the good qualities of a man. Of course, he's able to pull the sword, uh, we're already at a repetition because we all know, if there's one thing we all know, it's that Arthur already pulled a sword to establish sure. himself. Uh, okay, then things get complicated. The lady wants the sword back. Balin doesn't give it to her. He's about to leave the court uh, after, you know, I can't, I think I won't go into the elements of prophecy, but the first prophecy is that he's, this is a sword for killing his brother. Right. It's a brother killing sword. Uh, he's about to leave the court. Before he does, the Lady of the Lake arrives. She has been heretofore, uh, um, I guess I'll say, a good character on the side of Arthur. She gave him his sword Excalibur. Yeah. And, uh, but Balin has an ancient grudge with her, and he chops off her head. <laughs> okay, this doesn't seem like the action of the best and noblest knight on earth. And no. Ar Arthur is furious because this is a very important breach of hospitality. Right. And he says, it's uh, my safe conduct. Uh, safe con we watch for safe conducts and hospitality here because Balin breaches them all. Okay. okay, he decides that the only way to get back in Arthur's good books is to defeat King's King Roins for him. He goes off to seek King Roins. In the meantime, an Irish knight decides to get in good with Arthur by chasing Balin down and killing him. His name is Lancior. So he does take off after Balin, but of course it goes the other way and Balin kills Lancior. Then a strange cryptic maiden named Columbay, Columbay rides up on her horse, says, you've killed the man I love most on earth and kills herself. Right. Out of the gloom rides King Mark of Cornwall, who is... <laughs> okay, and on okay. it goes. It, it goes on and on, and you should really go read uh, Mallory's version if you want yeah. to know. But but yeah, there's this kind of and then, and then, and then quality, and things seem to happen for no reason. Okay, let's go back to the, the fact that the best knight in the world, the, he, so the official quote is a passing good man of his hand is without villainy or other treachery. He's the best knight. And then he kills the Lady of the Lake. Did they have a different definition of the terms villainy and treachery and best knight? Or what's going on there? Well, this is, of course, the absolutely hardest question. If you make up a list after reading this whole uh, tale of the things that Balin is responsible for, he starts off as a murderer in jail. He moves on to uh, one a murderer, murderer out of jail. Yes. And one stupid accident after another, he strikes the dolorous stroke. Okay? And there we run into the whole connections uh, with the grail quest uh, that he 
has causing the wasteland. If some of you have read T.S. Eliot, you know how long the wasteland lasts in yes. human literature. Um, and the whole Fisher King. and Yes, yes, the Fisher King is there. Uh, this is an incident that's actually shorter in Mallory's version than the question of the lady who's cheating on her boyfriend, uh, Garnish, and uh, another suicide, and then in the end, of course, he meets his brother and by accident, they don't recognize each other and hack each other to bits. Okay, so right. the, this is so one... he tops off his career with not only murder, but fratricide. Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, so there's a, he's a disaster waiting to happen. And yet we have this, this peculiar insistence from authoritative people, such as Merlin, for example, that he is... Uh, the best, the noblest, the worthiest, the greatest man of honor. Uh, good, what is he is a man of worship. We're told this is a strange, ambiguous word, which is all over the place in Mallory, uh, because it would seem that worship is what you get from other people, right? right your reputation, re or yeah, your, your honor. It's respect, yeah, respect, honor, worship, and yet here it seems to be an internal quality. Mm -hmm. of worth um yeah it's not so much honorable deeds as some kind of essence that's inside you all right i would say that this this equivocation between a kind of an external regard and an internal essence is of the essence for the whole right. of the mort d'arthur is it yes. is it internal or external is it something he did or is it something he is yeah. And we've got the kind of the isness of what he is apparently outweighing the the actions that he commits and that surround him. Right. So you're the best knight, even if you kill other people and act with dishonor and treachery that doesn't affect your internal worth. It doesn't seem to in this in this story. <laughs> Right. Um, there's, you know, I'm, there are other critics that think it does, that this right. is meant to demonstrate, but I don't think that they deal adequately with this uh, contradiction. Like, how yeah. can it be that in the, the terms of valorization that Mallory, Mallory uses over and over and over again, Valen has got all of them. And as if you read on, you will see that Lancelot is in a very similar position. Yeah, and he's described in a lot of the same words that they actually use for Balin, the best knight and the worthiest and the passing good man of his hands and right. all of those. Huh. Right. I never saw that connection between Balin and Lancelot before. Oh. Well, I think this ambivalence um, is everywhere and it, it, it merges in this story in particular. In other words, the Lady of the Lake, she used to be unambiguous. <laughs> now it seems like... <laughs> She caused his mother to be burnt at the stake. Why? Right. And uh, the lady, the first lady, the one who's arrived as a, an emissary from the lady Lyle of, of where is it from? Italian? Yeah. I think she's uh, from Avalon. Yeah, it's a misprint for the lady of the Isle of Avalon, but it's she becomes Lady Lyle. Okay. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so she's Lady Lyle. And somehow she's given this damsel a sword, which is on the one hand going to demonstrate the worthiest knight. And on the other hand is an enchanted sword that is apparently meant for killing her brother. So the 
the lady's original motive is that she wants to um, take revenge on her own brother. Okay, so how can a, a sword, which is apparently good, also have this evil purpose underlying it? And uh, the Lady of the Lake, it just goes on and on. Right. I think you call in your book, um, which is the genesis of narrative in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, you call this like contradiction, the central enigma of this story. Yes. Well, this is a, a, a reading, you know, that is my overall reading of the Mort, but there are other, I'm going to even say structuraling or productive contradictions going on. Um, that, yeah, right through to the end. Yes, that, right through to the yeah. end. Yeah. yeah, that are held in a kind of tension, and well, um, and that Mallory's working through in all these different stories. Yes, that would be. Yeah, that for me would be uh, one of the most important ways of seeing it. That if it can go one way, he'll go. He'll have it go one way, and then he'll have it go another way, and then he'll have it so that all these little things work themselves out over and over and over again. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So he takes this sword because, and the damsel says, no, you can't keep it. You have to give it back. And he says, no, I'm going to keep it. She says, well, you're going to kill your brother with it. And he says, famously, I will take the adventure. Now, Jill Mann in a famous article wrote that this is the driving imperatives for knights, that they are always taking the adventure. They're taking the adventure that God gives them or that the world gives them, and that that's the job of the knight errant to ride out and take the adventure, take what, deal with whatever comes. Um, do you agree? And is that kind of what, is that the structural um, imperative of this story? I, I, t I totally agree. I think this is this is a profound insight into the nature of romance, that it is epistemologically an encounter with an adventure that's going to come to you. And there are things inside the word adventure, which um, has a kind of future connotation, you know, what is to come, ad right. ventura. From, yeah. from the French ad venir. Yes, whatever. that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, ad venire. So, uh, it, it it is a relation to a futurity. I find this so philosophically interesting that you set an, out into the world and you take what comes to you. And this right. this encounter will be, uh, well, again, we get this doubleness between it will test what you actually are or it will reveal what you uh, should become. And uh, I don't know if you're reading Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. I assume so. Yeah, we are. Yes. So the, the, that very much is uh, on this paradigm, I think. You take the adventure. You, you face up to what is coming to you externally. Sometimes Balin says, I think he says this three times in the course of the story, taking the adventure. And he's, he twice says that God will ordain, you know, in other words, there's a master plan. I'll take the right. adventure that God will ordain. And then once uh, that shall come to me, you know, and that the last one that shall come to me is this um, sense of the adventure as future, as what is to come, as what we cannot anticipate. And it's a kind of an openness to this sphere of things that may simply happen. So it's not a grasping, taking control, having a plan or an agenda. It is uh, allowing what will come to come. 
Right. And I mean, that's the etymological meaning behind adventure, right? That the what is to come um, will come, the advenir. Yeah. And so it's not adventure like we think of it, like, you know, riding a roller coaster or whatever. It is literally what, you know, even if a boring stuff comes, that's what's to come, right? Yeah. And how you took that would also be a test of who you are. <laughs> I guess yeah. so. Though there's other places where uh, um, Balin has some kinds of uh, difficulties with what will come. I mean, we've got this strange, he's in relation to what will come, that is to say the unknown. And on the other hand, there's all this prophecy that tells him exactly right. what is going to come. And right. which he re generally refuses to accept. You know, who yeah. would accept that they're going to cause the dolorous stroke that will lay three kingdoms to waste? I mean, yeah. somebody sends it to me and say, no, I won't. <laughs> exactly. Well, he actually said, if I knew that to be true, I'd... I would kill myself. Yeah, that's right. He does. But he doesn't kill himself. So he clearly doesn't think it's true. Right. And then yeah. and it's kind of stupid accident when it happens. I know. I know. And there's this concatenation, especially near the end of the tale of um, Balan and Balan, of the word hap, which we have, I mean, that, that word doesn't really survive today, but it's what will happen. And it's the root of words such as happenstance. I mean, it's, I guess the closest thing would be to chance, but also mishap that it, something happens by accident, mishap. Yeah. But it's also the root of the word happy and unhappy. And so when Balin is described as an unhappy knight, that means um, that he's on the bad side of fortune, right? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. I hadn't ever thought that before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's some seminal work. I, this is the vocabulary in Mallory is rather limited. And that is, again, a kind of a key word. So yeah. he's unlucky. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's unhappy in the sense that he's unlucky, which would also make you just unhappy in the emotional sense that we have of it. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. it's a double meaning. And that's linked to taking the adventure, taking the hap, whatever happens. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But it's also weird that, I mean, on page 59 of our edition, we're using the Norton edition. Um, then Balin smote him with the unhappy sword. So can a, a sword can be unlucky or unhappy. Um, and then Balin himself says, all that made an unhappy knight in the castle, all that made an unhappy knight, for here it happed me to slay a knight. So there's this repetition of the word hap that I think ties into that taking the adventure in a really interesting way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, you've, you've tied that in with an object, right? So the sword is unhappy. Yeah. You know, it's an unlucky sword and, and it's not Balin that's unlucky. And this, and that's an, that's a trait of the Arthurian uh, canon in itself, right. that there are objects that seem to be inspirited or to have special properties or even volition. Yeah. Or yeah, volition, where you've got um, magic ships that just float around carrying people. Right. Yeah, and and uh, objects of special significance, which I think is coming out of the uh, whole vast medieval archive of saints, relics, and 
oh, this this notion of there are objects that are um, speaking to you, right? And they somehow are, more than just an object. Yeah, they are more than just an object. And of course, the the sword is that, right? This, all the swords are. So <laughs> yes. Arthur already pulled a sword that that uh, had the excess value of rightwise born king of England. And now Balin has taken this sword. Why is the damsel carrying a sword? That's a very unusual thing to do. The sword can't be pulled from its sheath. Uh, she wants the sword back. Balin wants to keep the sword. Then we're told that the sword is a sword for killing his brother, which seems to be a kind of a, almost mistake. Uh, the gift, the fact that swords are gifts, right? They mean certain things and they are given by certain people, such as the Lady of the Lake. And then they are kind of detachable. Their scabbard means something different. And the pommel is changed at one point on that sword. Merlin changes the pommel. And this sword, this unhappy sword, is exactly the one that Merlin's going to make float in a magic stone that's going to drift down the river and be Galahad's sword. And start the Grail quest. Exactly. So is he redeeming this sword, or is this sword already full of those magic properties that are being misused? Wow. And again, uh, you know, it always kind of kills me that Balin is the knight with two swords, which is what Vanavar actually called this this story. This section, yeah. Yeah, this section of the Mord. Uh, and yet he's, he's doesn't have enough swords. Right? <laughs> he, he won't leave his sword behind when he goes to dinner at Pelham's castle, but he doesn't have two swords. So when his sword breaks, then he has to grab for the nearest weapon, which turns out to be the Holy Lance. Right. Talk about unhappy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, and those names. I mean, he's he, the names proliferate. Like, not only are all the swords. Well, I guess the the this sword isn't named, but Arthur's famously got a named sword. But the the characters seem to accrue different names too. So Balin is called the Knight with Two Swords, and Balin the Sauvage. And I mean, he he seems to pick up names kind of, and they stick to him, and people know him by different names and so on. What effect does that have for the reader? Wow, that's interesting. Why do you think he's called the Sauvage? I'd never thought of that before. Well, the Sauvage literally means the wild. So yeah. he's he's kind of a, a wild thread through the story, actually. He, maybe he personifies that kind of chance, you know, the fortune neither good nor bad, just kind of randomly careening through the landscape. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, well, obviously names are super important in the Mort. And uh, as I don't know if your students know, but every single name in the Winchester manuscript, which is the authoritative manuscript for this work, every single name is rubricated, which is to say it's written in red ink. Yeah. And that's really difficult to do. If you're copying a manuscript, just on the spacing, that means you've got to put down one pen, take up another pen, write a name in red, and then, you know, who would do that? Yeah. That's, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Someone thought these names were important. And 
So who knows? I mean, it might be like one of those monuments, you know, to the war that we get all the names in every village in England of the people who died during the two wars and so on. That this itself seems to be a monument to all these knights. And I don't know. Yes. Kind of a memorial. Yeah. Well, there we're running into, you know, ancient lists where you know, book two of the Iliad, for example, you know, (laughs) all the names, everybody who went, you got to know. Okay. And this, and so this obviously feeds into the general importance of name, which has got, so the, the actual, you know, physical designators seem to be extremely important. And then there's the question of having a good name, right? Right. What goes with ties back with reputation and worthiness and absolutely. Absolutely. And then this, leads to a whole set of, uh, of deployments, which are here tragically invoked in, I think, in Valin and Blan. I think this is, I would say, a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that you, but the presumption is you can know people's names. There's all kinds of challenges for name throughout the Mort. I think Andrew Lynch is very good on this subject in his book of an, okay. on the importance of name. Uh, and uh, then you have a whole set of narrative incidents of refusing to tell your name, traveling incognito, changing your signs, that is to say your shields and um, anything that is a marker of who you, your, what your identity is. So we right. find this with Lancelot, who uh, gets gets tired of uh, being challenged all the time, I guess, and rides <laughs> anonymously so he can win more tournaments so people will still fight with him because they don't know who he is. And right. so you get this weird, uh, yeah, this oscillation between... Once people find out about his name, that will give him more worth and help his name even more. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, so we don't ever, we don't sort of propose that you run into somebody and you know who they are because you look at their face. Right. Okay? So the name seems to stand for the person in a way that uh, normal perception isn't working. I, I've just, I find this very odd, but it's obviously yeah. the key point at the end of Balin and Balan. So- uh, That they can only recognize each other by their shield. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think I'd know my sister, even if she were dressed oddly. Yeah. <laughs> How about if she had a metal pot over her head? <laughs> I think I'd still know her. <laughs> But yeah, I suppose that that makes it slightly more realistic. The fact that they're in full body armor and you can't see their face. And so, uh, so there could be some naturalism to that, but I think uh, the, the real significance is kind of symbolic. It is right. without your name and your, uh, your signs, the marks that are on your shield. And these marks become really important in the late part of the mort, like whether you're wearing some lady's sleeve or not wearing her sleeve. Mm-hmm. It, um, is going to be uh, vastly important. And here is the first instance of it where um, Balan tragically thinks, oh, he thought it might be his brother because he's got two swords, and but he's changed his shield. And this right. strange menace of this figure that appears from nowhere and says, oh, get a bigger shield and hands him his death, really. Yeah. Amazing. You'd think the brother would just stop and say, you know, excuse me, you, you look like my brother. <laughs> yeah. 
But what about their names too? I mean, Balin and Balan, there's one vowel difference and, and it's hard even to hear, like I have to emphasize the pronunciation. I mean, either this is some whacked out mother who's really cruel to her kids or there's something going on in there. And I know you say in your book that there's this kind of doubling effect and mirroring doppelganger effect. But what do you think about their names or, or that kind of double doubling effect of the brothers? Yeah, well, the, the whole question of brotherhood in, in this book, there's an awful lot of brothers, aren't there? Yeah. Have I really, do I really have a solution to that? I don't know. You know, why we have uh, Galahad and Galahalt, names right. that are, are so similar and so confusing. Helen I think there's Pel two Elaines and three Isoldas. That's and... right. Yes, yes. It just, it, uh, so they had limited numbers of names to call on. But Mallory needed a baby name book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this question of brothers is, um, you know, we've got, Gawain and all his brothers and we have the mm. kinship confusions I'm going to say going on all over the place right the uh the question of who kills whom who kills King Lot who's going to come back and revenge the killing of the you know that's the um the patricide right, right. so we've got various kinds of patricide and fratricide going on at the same time we have kind of intense relations between brothers right mm -hmm. even between bad guys like Tarquin and Caradoc right they're united yeah. in their perfidy <laughs> and and here you've got uh you know what if you could answer what is the function of the double in literature and in particularly in I'm going to say traditional literature like folk tales you, you would really have done the world a favor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so, so there's other, there's other, there's all kinds of forms of doubling in here yeah. from the two swords, two, damsels two, two swords. damsels, two suicides. Like why? Yeah. Yeah. But there's only one invisible knight. What do you make of him? <laughs> like this random knight who rides around invisibly, but somehow everybody knows who it is. Yeah. He doesn't need anything for people to recognize him, right? He's just like a name riding around in empty space without even a shield. Yeah. I don't know. Why is he invisible? <laughs> Why is he invisible? It's um it's kind of a form of cheating, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A cheating at what would be would be the question. Well, uh, the rules of fighting and honorable fighting. I mean, he just rides up behind people and kills them. Yes, this is this is absolutely true. But this is why I think it's sort of important that the rules of honorable fighting seem not really to have been established quite. Right. So right. he's riding along, but he's then the brother of someone who seems to have a spiritual mission. Yeah. And when they come to the castle... So you have all these strange enigmas. What is the importance of blood? Why do they have to get uh, blood in order to treat the festering wounds of the the lady brother? Why is King um, Pele giving this feast that you've got to bring a woman to? Why? Right. What is up with that? You know, <laughs> it just, it seems not to make sense. And then when you get there, you have... Uh, 
the Garland, the Invisible Knight, acting as a kind of social arbiter, right? So he's saying he he chastises Balin for his rudeness, really, and Balin is being rude. And this fundamental breach of hospitality is uh, very important in the whole scope of Arthurian literature, mm-hmm. right? That uh, especially in relation to Chrétien, yeah, where right. the whole panoply of hospitality and in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is amounts to a, a super code of conduct, right? And here Balin just sets it aside and goes around murdering people. And Garland is the one, <laughs> Garland, the bad guy, is the one who is apparently speaking for the canons of hospitality. But as to his invis, have you got any insights on that? Oh no, <laughs> no. I mean, I think I think maybe it might actually. I'm just thinking now with this conversation, it might tie into that whole idea of names and recognizing people, and you know, I mean, the it might stand as a kind of uncanny symbol of knights who change their their shields or their swords. So in a way. Actually, I'm just thinking uh, as I speak, which might be totally wrong, but it, it, it's almost like he's standing in for Balin himself because once Balin ta- changes his shield, he becomes kind of invisible to his brother um, in some sort of fundamental way. I don't yeah, know. that's really that's really interesting. So this is this is a semi demonic form of disguise, uh, and that that disguise is just the it's just the most extreme form of I'm so disguised I'm invisible, and yet yeah. disguise is going to be another one of those master tropes that will work itself out on on good or bad when Lancelot disguises himself. It's good, uh, and right. then so we can tie that to the very very first incident in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, which is Uther disguising himself as the Duke of Cornwall. Oh, interesting. And I guess, would you would you describe that as demonic? Well, Merlin in some stories is the son of a devil, but Mallory doesn't ever say that. He just puts it in the mouths of other characters. But it's not entirely above board. I guess I would put it in the same category as riding around invisibly killing people. Not quite as extreme, but it's still kind of in that same sphere of deception and yeah. Delusion, illusion, delusion, illusion. Yeah. 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 And again, Garland kills two people. The second one's completely de trop. (laughs) Okay. I know this this whole story seems to have excess and you also I think you use in your book I started counting up the number of times you use the word eerie and oh, uncanny oh, I know it's too like, many too many well, times it's not too many because the story is eerie and uncanny and and um fascinatingly weird yes well I agree I think it really works I reread it yesterday and it had the same effect and part of that effect is oh this time it's all going to click together i'm going to get the magic decoding ring and (laughs) da-da it's going to make perfect sense and it's just the littlest things that go wrong right like there's the sense that if they just had done you know if they hadn't changed the shield or you know yeah 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 so um as Jill Mann's argument, it, overall argument, and not only about this text, has has to do with chance. 
okay, that these things work themselves out by chance and not yeah. in in terms of um, some powerful destining force. And yeah. it does, you know, there's a lot to recommend that view that it does seem like an accident that he causes yeah. the dolorous stroke. It's a kind of, a, it's a well-intentioned thing that he reveals um, to Garnish that his lady is cheating on him, right? That's well-intentioned. It's not his fault yeah. that Garnish commits suicide immediately right. thereafter. So it does seem uh, one thing after another. On the other hand, we have what I'm going to say, overcoding. That is right. not that is the opposite of chance. It's a kind of a prophetic glare of overcoating that is saying, this is destiny. This is bound to happen. This is, and this leads us back to Merlin, I think. Yeah. And for, so back to Merlin and forward to the grail, because all of these things happen, you could argue in order to set up the grail quest. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They do. They do. So, uh, and again, when you come to the Grail quest, there's this sense of supernatural events unfolding themselves according to a divine logic. And yet, right. yet you think also, and this was precipitated by some guy grabbing the wrong lance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this kind of oversaturation of significance at the same time as it's completely impractical to ask why. Yes. Right? Like, why is the one question you can't ask of this type of story? And yet, everything in the landscape seems to be saturated with significance and meaning. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, well, you may have thought more about Merlin and prophecy and prediction than I have at this point. So, <laughs> what's your overall take on that role of Merlin? Merlin's prop prophecies fall into contingent prophecies, which it's useful to know, and you can change your behavior accordingly. So, for example, really early in the story, um, Merlin says to Arthur um, something like, stop fighting because God is angry with you, and, right. you know, things will go badly if you don't. And Arthur stops fighting, right? And so that's a useful guide to action. And then there's the other type of prophecy it's a categorical prophecy and it's this will happen, whatever we do. But it seems to me that there's a third type of prophecy and maybe this is what Balin falls into, that there's this third type of prophecy that is officially contingent, but because of the person, it becomes categorical. So the prophecy that you will kill your brother with this sword is a contingent prophecy, right? If you keep the sword, you're going to kill your brother. But because Balin can't not take the sword and stay who he is, so his idea of knighthood involves taking the adventure and taking whatever comes to him and dealing with it, that prophecy becomes categorical because he cannot act otherwise and stay who he is. And so that's um, what I think a lot of that, that's what I think is really interesting about the prophecies, both in this section and throughout, that there are certain prophecies that kind of don't fall into either category, um, that characters cannot act otherwise and stay who they are. And th I think that's really interesting. As for Merlin, I mean, Merlin is 
clearly a behind the scenes manipulator for the quest for the Holy Grail, but I don't, I, I cannot peer behind those scenes. I don't know why he does what he does, except he's apparently setting up this whole quest. Wow, that's super interesting. That's great. That's that's a great division of, of what's going on. And I think you're absolutely right. And the little passage we already cited about uh, Balin saying, you know, if I thought you were right, I would do so grave a deed as to kill myself. Um, right. you, you're seeing... Yeah, you could kill yourself and not do these things that are promising. Right. But that's still an option, but you wouldn't be you. Yeah, and he can't accept it. Is really what he's right. saying. I don't accept that as what's as my destiny. And he's wrong because of course Merlin is right. Is. Yeah, yeah, and I I think we'll um we'll see that again. Uh the Arthur's attempt to kill all the children that are yeah. born on May Day. Yeah. So That's again another kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways that um, Merlin tells him that he who um, will bring about the downfall of, of all of Camelot is born on May Day. And so that's a categorical prophecy, but Arthur takes it as contingent. And so he kills all the children. And in some ways that causes, yes. you could argue, you know, that brings about the whole prophecy in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's categorical, but he takes it as contingent. Yeah. These terms are really going to work. Yeah, <laughs> they are. Yeah. Well, I didn't come up with them. I think that's Rachel Cathell. Yeah, I know. But I think your, your elaboration that things that look contingent are actually not because of the character of the people involved is taking us much closer to even Aristotelian ideas of tragedy. Right. Mm. And so I, right. I think we're going to see the same thing with Lancelot on the Grail quest, right? That he, Absolutely. it looks like he should be able to change and he cannot, in fact, yeah. change who he is. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's, that's, uh, that's very useful. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, this has been a, a great discussion and I've learned a lot. So thank you very much for maybe not helping us make sense of Balin and Balan, but at least, you know, helping us figure out why it doesn't make sense, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> hold, <laughs> hold that thought. Yeah, there are. And, and also, it's just, it's just an amazing text to read. <laughs> it just really is. You read it again, you think, wow. Yep. It's that's the good response. Yeah, and I think it's it's perfectly suited to Mallory. This the source is actually not as good as Mallory's version because it supplies many more forms of explanation and you read the explanations there and you actually think, "Oh, I don't think so." So, <laughs> the quality of Mallory's prose is in itself cryptic, enigmatic, giving you less than you could possibly use and yet at the same time more evocative for all that. So I think it's that, quintessential Mallory. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity, oh. Kathy. Thank you. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Causey. Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from Heatherdale.com.